Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hey, audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing. Today, we're going to be talking about all legal because I have one of the best attorneys in the country. And I know uh, Meryl Kaleza, who has been uh, doing a lot of my work as well as uh, he's in general as an SEC attorney. And also, I think he does real estate and everything under the sky for syndication, right, in terms of legal paperwork. Hey, Mel, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Uh, thanks for having me. It's always good talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, just for you guys to know, I mean, I've been asking Mel to come on my podcast for a long time and he has been avoiding it you know, compared to a lot of guys out there, you know, who jump on, you know, <laughs> any request to do a podcast. So, so you can see, you know, sometimes Meryl is under the radar, but he has so much content behind him and he's so knowledgeable. So we're going to go a lot deep into the SEC syndication world. And also, of course, about Meryl and what his plans are and all that. So Meryl, why not at very high level, tell us about yourself. I don't ask about how you get started real estate because that's really, really long time. <laughs> but you can do so. Go ahead. I'll give you the, uh, I'll give you the abbreviated version. So most, many people don't know, I um, I started out as a corporate bankruptcy lawyer at a, a large firm right out of law school. And it's funny, people ask, why do you do so many additional things uh, outside of law? Most of them are real estate related and you have all these different businesses. Well, I witnessed firsthand how some of the largest businesses in the country and even in the world are operated improperly or don't have the right capital stack or business in general changes or the environment changes and they have to be restructured. And so I spent two years working on uh, the Enron bankruptcy, representing secured creditors, and then worked on some other small companies like um, WorldCom, a little company. It was weird. People used to go to stores. James, this is crazy. They go to stores and they actually check out these boxes that played movies. It was called Blockbuster. You know, you remember the old days where you actually- Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember somewhere? that. Yeah, and then like date night, Friday night, you get popcorn and you get a box that you stick into your VCR. So I, re- I worked on the um, Blockbuster uh, bankruptcy and then uh, Kmart, their first or their second one. And then, uh, and they're all they're reorganizations and then a bunch of oil and gas. And then late, later on, my last large bankruptcy uh, client or restructuring client was commercial real estate focusing on uh, workforce housing. And I really enjoyed that. I got tired of working for large companies and wanted to go out on my own, which is like most of your audience and listeners, you know, they don't like the typical uh, nine to five or there really is no nine to five for people like us, but let's call it seven to seven type job. And, you know, so I started doing the law and then I was able to start getting involved in deals, real estate and other related um, transactions because I didn't have a large firm that wanted a piece of it. So if you're in a large firm and you're doing deals outside of practicing law, you've got to get approval. And many times you have to either share in some of the profits, depending on how it's structured, or they just say you can't do it. So I uh, we formed a little SEC firm, a nice boutique firm, got two great lawyers. Uh, you've worked with uh, both of them, aside from me, two good paralegals. And um, we're representing people 
right now really all over the country. And it's fascinating to look at the different ways people invest and the assets they're choosing and the different uh, educations they have. But real quick, you are correct. I do not go on podcasts because we're friends and I've listened to your podcast and I follow your podcast and we think alike. And I've had you on my uh, one of my webinars. And quite honestly, it was one of the more populated uh, webinars and people really enjoyed it. So you are the first podcast I've been on in like 15 months. Oh, and I think I've only been on one other one. I can't remember which one it yeah. was. Yeah. I think the thing is, uh, I mean, I listen to you when doing a webinar. I mean, we're just, I mean, even like me, I'm like very straightforward to the point and like to be very open. No, no fluff, no marketing style, right? You know, because I mean, I think when you know a lot of details on how things work, you know, you can, you can figure out a lot of things, right? How people do stuff. So absolutely. Right? That's why sometimes my podcast questions can be sharp. <laughs> I mean, shop not in the bad sense, but I can ask yeah. a very specific question because when people tell, uh, you know, something very high level, I can go a bit more deeper just because. I like that. It's yeah. like uh, sitting in front of a judge and arguing. I used to be a, a litigation attorney in the corporate mm-hmm. bankruptcy section and the judges would stop you mid-sentence and turn around and say, you're wrong or what about this? And of course, you didn't come prepared for what about this, but you had to know what about this. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's fun, right? I think, I mean, before I started my own podcast, I was being on other people's podcasts, listening to a lot of podcasts. But after some time, I don't want to listen to a lot of podcasts because they're like, tell us how do you get started? And people talk about how good is real estate, how good is multifamily, but nobody talks about how, right? Uh, how do right. you make it? <laughs> Everybody's like in a very high level. And, and I can't blame them because a lot of people are not real operators, so they may not know the exact details, which is okay, I guess, right? But, you know, it's just not the best content out there that you want to spend like one hour listening to, right? So having said that, let's go into detail. So <laughs> so 2008 was pretty bad. I presume you, I mean, maybe not 2008. So right now, right after COVID right now, right? Uh, I think a lot of syndicators went through this hardship, right? Because the market swings and the market demand is not behind them, right? So we can see a lot of syndicators struggling. So but what are the things that at very high level that you see? I mean, you don't have to go into details because it could be confidential. What are the mistakes or what are the issues in uh, in terms of executing business plan that you see from syndicators? Because some of them, you probably have come to you for help. Yeah, so... Uh- um, obviously, I'm not going to list uh, names and phone numbers. Gosh, absolutely not. And, and uh, I agree with you 100%. And I might just start off by saying, uh, you know, we're nobody special. You and I see the same issues, I think, that, that I'm seeing as a law firm representing quite a few clients. The difference is how to navigate around those issues and how to utilize, you know, maybe the way you raise capital or maybe the way you stack your capital differently so these deals work. So I tell you, the biggest issue quite honestly, it's not, it's, it's not that there are not enough deals because there's still deals and people are saying, yeah, it's at the top of the market, blah, blah, blah. But financing is at the absolute lowest it's ever been. Right. Uh, it's raising capital from the same type of, um, of uh, potential passive investors they had prior to COVID. Um, I think a lot of passive investors, a couple things, and a lot of them have are nervous because they're not true family office institutional type investors that understand peaks and bounds and while covid wasn't planned we were set up for a correction and so covid corrected us um it actually corrected the world in a correction nobody could have planned but even with that you know there are peaks and bounds so a lot of passive investors are nervous um but it's opened up the the playing field for larger uh 
accredited investors, family offices, they're all being very aggressive in finding capital. And I think the problem you have is with a lot of, of your listeners and a lot of people that listen on, on my webinars, they don't know how to access them. And so it makes deals take a long time. Right now, I would say every single deal we're representing goes full two extensions on the uh, PSA to, for the most point, to get their capital in. You know, I, I, I don't think you should have a 30-day close after your 30-day due diligence. I think you should have a 60-day close. Now, sellers are not going to like that I said that because they want it to happen quicker. But the stress that it's putting on syndicators right now, and there are a lot of people doing a lot of deals at the same time, and they're fishing out of the same pool. And so, you know, it's, I'm sure you've, and I know you've talked about uh, capital stacking and how to use, you know, preferred equity in the right, in the right market or the right asset. But I think people need to be more educated about what else is out there because it's not as traditional as it was pre-COVID. And you started by saying 2008, and that's kind of a Freudian slip, but that's essentially what we just came out of. 2020 was like 2008, uh, except I would argue even more expansive. But uh, anyway, a lawyer answer, very long. Yeah, sure. No, that's perfect, right? So so where do you think we are heading from? I mean, I, mean, I know the worst is not over. Right? I can see a lot of distress deals coming out right now. People are like, hey, let's have better sell right now right? because we are in distress. So where do you think we are heading, you know? Post-COVID. Well, James, if if, if if I truly knew where we were heading, I wouldn't be doing podcasts and webinars and I'd be on my own island with a boat because people would have paid <laughs> me billions to be right. But mm. where I think we could be heading is, I think, based on what I'm reading and what I've seen, that we're probably heading at some point towards some sort of hyperinflation. Most economists, many economists see that uh, you don't print $6 trillion without having some sort of an effect. And people are not paying attention and not all people, but in general, people are not pay attention. You know, our, our inflation has creeped up to about four and a half percent, where it's typically been around two. People aren't really watching that the price of milk is up and gasoline is up because there are other things that affect gasoline, but things in general are costing more and people aren't getting increases in salaries. We just got out of COVID and employers are very nervous. So that I think will play again into how people raise capital. Now on the flip side, Financing is still at an all-time low. Uh, Fannie and Freddie just uh, got rid of their uh, their um, escrow requirements. You know, mm. I mean, and I don't know when this is going to air, but that's like big news. But it, yeah, so maybe you don't have to raise an extra seven or eight hundred thousand dollars. But because we're still in COVID and there's still dramatic effects going on in other places of the world, like India, that's getting killed by COVID, it has an effect on us. And so just because the lenders say you don't need to escrow, I would be conservative. And this is my corporate bankruptcy you know, nature. And I would still have the extra five or $600,000 if I'm a, an investor. And I see clients doing that now because if something happens, you want to be prepared. Worst case scenario, you, you do a distribution of uh, capital, small distribution of capital back to your investors. I don't know a single investor who's going to complain that they get three or 4% of their capital back in six months. I don't know anybody. No one I know in the world has ever complained about receiving some money. Um, and of course, now someone's going to email me or call me and say, I complain every time I receive a dollar. So nobody I know right <laughs> There's now. There's always someone like that, right? <laughs> right. right. I, had a, I had an investor who, uh, you know, when I was giving distribution on a consistent basis and he said, oh, let's go buy. I want to diversify to Bitcoin. And you see, because I, I don't want to miss the Bitcoin run. And this was like, this was like uh, four to five months ago because Bitcoin was running up 
we're crazy, right? I have to give him education. Bitcoin is different, real estate is different, right? So right. it's just different investment asset class. You can't just simply, you know, uh, liquidate real estate, right? So, yeah. so that's interesting. So let's go into uh, some of the topics that I really want to bring to the audience because recently SEC, maybe like two, three months ago, SEC did a lot of changes to, you know, how does uh, accredited investor being defined, right? So they make really good changes, I think. So I think I want to, let's go into like lease item, you know, how that has changed from past, right? So in the past, accredited investor is, you know, you have to make, uh, you know, you have to have more than a million dollars in assets without your primary residence, or you have to make 200 or 300,000, right? 300,000 if you're married or 200,000 uh, on your W-2 pay for the past two years, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I want to take that off. So how did, how is that requirement has changed moving forward? Sure. And, and so it did happen a couple months ago and it hasn't really been a huge focal point uh, for, for many because the way the SEC works is when they uh, approve a new rule, there's a 60-day kind of grace period until the rule goes into effect. So the rule literally is going into effect right about now. I don't know the exact date, but right about now is when it, it actually goes into effect. So I'm going to go over and I have a list in front of me. So if I look down for a second, because they Absolutely. did add some things. Absolutely. You have to but be very specific. That's okay. I want to be, yeah, I just, and, you know and, me. And please understand, this is not a, a legal advice or any, unless, I mean, unless you want to book it, but no, I think it's, it's not advice. Purposes it's only. entertainment purpose, education, right. entertainment purposes only. But there's a high likelihood if you reach out to us and you use us for your legal, that I'm going to say, or one of the lawyers will say the exact same thing I'm saying, but this is not legal. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll start off with one of the things you said. So you said a million dollars in assets. I just make a slight correction. It's a million dollars net worth. Net worth, yeah. Correct. Yeah, no big deal. No, it, it, because a lot of people- I'm not a lawyer. They own a million dollars in assets and $900,000 in debt. So your net worth is 100 grand. But see, James doesn't have debt. Everything is cash. So to him, it's all the same. I'm kidding. But yes, yeah, so as you as you put it, James, it's um, you know 200,000, the easiest ones that haven't really changed, but there's a caveat is if you're single and you've made $200,000 in income for the last two years and you intend or expect to make $200,000 or more this year, then you qualify as a credit investor. If you're married, that number jumps up to $300,000, which is kind of unfair because if you're married and your wife doesn't work outside the home, you're actually penalized. You know, no. uh, I'm not even going to go there because I'm going to have my wife and everybody else's wife yelling at me, but that's just the way the SEC did it. Now, one of the changes they did, um, which is interesting, is they have, it's called a spousal equivalent. So you don't necessarily have to be married. So I think it's more towards like same-sex sex marriages, um, but I could see people taking advantage of it. So let's say you and I, who I believe are both heterosexual, um, we decided to go into business together and we use the exemption of spousal equivalent, even though it's not truly defined with it. You have is. to show some proof on that or what? I, well, it, the, it literally just passed. Okay. Um, they need and, some case studies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do some case studies on, I can just see that. Yeah. You and I do some case studies on what you consider a spousal equivalent. And listen, I'm telling you people will take advantage of, but the idea is same sex marriages or marriages that may not be true marriages, like in Texas, a common law marriage um, may not be recognized outside the state of Texas. So you have a spousal equivalent. Um, in that case, that person may be making an extra 100, 150,000 or whatever that would factor into the $300,000. 
requirement. So that's something that, quite honestly, they made a big deal about when they first issued these proposed rules. So no one's really talked about it. So yeah, yeah, I never heard about it too. Yeah, that's the first time. Listen, you can go find a spousal equivalent if it doesn't get you in trouble. <laughs> um, it would get me in trouble. Will me too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so so we're talking about accredited investors, and I think the reason we're talking about it is um, some of your better investors or passive investors that come in with larger money are accredited. And if you choose to use 506C as your exemption under raising capital, you've got to prove that they're accredited. Either you have to prove it or you find a third party that's that's able to prove it. So it's important for people that are taking accredited investors, especially under 506C, they understand this. So Another thing that's pretty interesting is, so anybody that has a Series 7, Series 65, or Series 82 license, it's kind of like a broker-dealer or the precursor to a broker-dealer, they don't have to show anything as far as how much they have in assets or how much money they make. They're automatically deemed an accredited investor. Um, And it makes a lot of sense. They have to pass the exam, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. You can't just say, I'm going to take it. Yeah, you have to be licensed. Okay. Um, and I think the SEC was was focused on the fact that these guys and gals see these structures all day long. They're recommending them to investors. So they have the intellectual wherewithal with respect to these type of investments that they know and they're able to make decisions without having to go through hoops and they shouldn't be excluded from it. So that's interesting. So how difficult is that exam? I mean, how much does it cost? Uh, I don't know because I have not sat for it, Um, but that's a topic we're going to possibly talk at the very end if we talk about fund to funds. Okay. Um, But yeah, so, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know that many Series 65 people, so I'm not sure where they were going with that, but it's an exemption for accredited investors and it's there. So the next one is interesting because I personally have had quite a few people in deals I've done that have asked about it and I've been able to get around it in some aspects, but this makes it a little different. So typically if you and I are structuring a fund and let's say it's you and two of your you know, close friends that may not satisfy the accredited investor because you're an actual uh, issuer, they can invest in the deal because they're actually an owner in the deal. So they can invest without having to be an accredited investor. But what happens? Okay, can you repeat that again? Because that's that's a valid. That's I think a lot of people want to know that detail. Yeah, well, and I'm I'm trying to draw a very fine line here. If they're an owner, so you have an LLC, and it's James and Bob and Sue, and all three of you guys are owners. You put the LLC together. You're going to go raise capital, and they're going to raise capital too um, under the 506B or 506C. I'm assuming it's 506C in this scenario. Bob and Sue, who may not make $200,000 a year for the last two years, can still invest in the fund because they're an owner and an issuer. Okay, so if you're an issuer, if you have the sponsor, I guess, right? So Exactly, exactly. So what makes it a little more interesting is, so they took that and they went one step farther, which for me, I've got, I always have a team. That's the only way I can do all the different things I do, because I have people that are much smarter than me in very narrow areas, put it together, and I'm just a like a quarterback. But some of them like the deals that we put together. Actually, most of them like the deals we put together, but they know they don't have enough money or the qualifications to invest. And in every deal, it's, you know, your minimum investment is 50 grand, 100 grand, subject to the manager, you know, accepting smaller uh, uh, investments. 
And so I would love to have the ability to bring in, you know, maybe a 50 or $60,000 a year employee who wants to put five or 10 grand in because they believe in it. And I mean, imagine how much harder they would work knowing that this is something they invested in as well as just doing their normal job. So knowledgeable employees of your fund can now be deemed as accredited investors. So, so they become a GP, which means GP of a fund. No, they don't have to be GP of a fund. They okay. can just be an employee. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like our deal, some of the deals I work on at YouTube, some of the deals I work on, they may actually be a company, mm-hmm. uh, a real estate company, maybe drilling for um, helium and we're mm-hmm. raising uh, money to do a drill or Leander Springs or, you know, something like that, where it's more than just one person or two people. You have other people who may not necessarily be issuers, but they're working for you. You're accountant or your bookkeeper, whatever. So because they have knowledge of what you're doing and arguably a lot of knowledge, they can invest. I don't look at that as, okay, that's going to that's gonna make me hit my $10 million. I look at it differently. I look at it as, wow. So now people that are doing their job can invest if they want. And if they do invest, you and I both know they're going to work even harder. Got it. That's, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize. So basically, you don't have to be a GP, but you can be a, a employee of a fund or of yeah. any investment offerings, I guess. Then Right. And then yeah, I might argue on the flip side, because I was so intimate with the Enron bankruptcy. Remember, one of the big things that happened in Enron is they took all the 401k money and they invested it back in Enron stock. Mm-hmm. And now companies can't do that. Um, but the SEC is allowing an employee to essentially invest. The difference is it's the employee's option. It's not like money's being put aside and the company is deciding what to do. It's the employee that's saying, hey, I'd like to do it. Oh, so, that could be a good hiring uh, bait, I guess. Right? So. Well, I, you said it, not me. But yes, <laughs> I, I, would, I would view it as... But we we'd encourage people to come and work. I mean, we can use it as a, as a motivation to get someone. Right. I mean, and, if they, if, and, and then I guess the other way to look at it is if they don't want to invest and you know they have a little bit of cash, do you want them working on the deal? Just like people look at you and me and other people we know, if sometimes if we don't have any skin in the game at all, we're not investing a dime in, in a deal, some investors are going to say, well, if why aren't you investing anything? Not all, but some will. And so I'm, I kind of think the opposite. Well, you want to do this with me, but you're not willing to even invest $2,500, $5,000. may not mean that much to you. And then I, thought, I think, well, maybe I'll go find somebody else who can do that. I don't know. Just so these people don't have to go through accreditation process because they're basically employee of a fund. So, okay. So that hasn't been discussed. You know me, I'm, I'm a black and white lawyer. I don't like going gray at all. Other than my hair, I stay away from gray. Yeah. I would still document that, you know, this is what the employee is doing. It's under this exemption. And if I'm using a company and I'm going to name a company that I have no affiliation with and I get nothing out of, but like Verify Investor, which a lot of our clients use because they're just easy to be doing a long time. I would still say, hey, just go through Verify Investor because they're going to issue a little certificate that says, yes, you meet one of the requirements. It's third party. I don't worry about it. I spend $45 to do it. Done. So if, if I'm advising clients on this and they're asking about it, I tell them to have an independent party just verify that's the exemption. It's just one less thing to worry about. So and let me go through a couple more. So here's the other one. And it's already been out there. They just uh, redefined it. So LLCs with 
$5 million or more in assets are automatically an accredited investor. Again, you have to verify or they have to have independent verification that they have $5 million or more in assets. I can tell you there are many instances where investment groups are coming in and maybe they're in your deals, maybe someone else's deal, where they're coming in and they're going to put $3 million or $4 million into a deal. Okay. And they're going to argue they're an accredited investor. And the reason they will, not the reason, but one of the things they argue that is because they don't want you to go through and possibly know who their investors are by requiring an accreditation on every one of them. Um, and that's probably the most likely reason. Or two, they don't realize that unless they have $5 million, it doesn't have to be $5 million into your investment, but they have to have $5 million in assets, presumably cash, to qualify. And so people are doing it. I know for a fact there are small LLCs doing it improperly. And I think it's very important, especially with a lot of, um, you know, some of the stuff. I unfortunately know more. There's some attorneys, SEC attorneys that have been slapped recently. There's some large syndicators that have been slapped recently for improper capital raising. So, and it's coming out of the uh, Salt Lake City uh, SEC division. They're looking at these type of groups um, because we've always been under the radar. And so, again, it goes back to black and white. I'd rather over uh, be overly cautious than you know one dumb mistake and uh, you're in a six to nine month investigation and hope you just get a slap on the wrist. That's not going to be good for business for anybody. So. The, again, the LLC. So if you create an LLC and you want to go invest in other uh, funds, if you don't want to have to disclose who your members are and verify they're accredited, you know, you need to have over 5 million. Here's the other thing. If you're creating an LLC and it's a fund and it's not, not everybody in there is accredited, you need to make sure you're going to have to be very careful because if you invest in someone else's fund and you've got 10 sophisticated investors in your fund, your kind of fund of funds, that counts as 10 for them if they're doing a 506B. Or technically, you can't invest in their fund because not every one of yours is accredited if they're a 506C. So let me understand that clearly. So 506B, we have a limitation of 35 sophisticated investors, right? So, right. so if you're investing in 506B, you have to really make sure, I mean, the count of whatever sophisticated investor in this fund, if, if, if an LLC was put together, will be counted towards the 35 people, I guess. Right. Right. And, and I can give you an example. Um, I know Greg and I were working on something maybe a few weeks ago mm -hmm. uh, where a small LLC gets together and they want to invest 150000 to a client's fund. And the client was at 34 sophisticated investors. And we asked him, is the fund accredited? And the client didn't know because they weren't aware of this particular um, qualification for credit investors. They just assumed it was. Well, the reality is it wasn't. And they couldn't take the investment because it consisted of three members, none of whom were accredited, but had enough money to pull 150000 together. And so they couldn't take them because it busts the 35-person cap. The LLC doesn't count as one because there were three sophisticated investors investors in it, it counted as three more. So it brought them from 34 to 37. So they couldn't take it. So that's an example uh, under, a, if you're doing a 506B, where you're limited to the number of, of um, investors that are sophisticated. If you're doing a 506C, you couldn't even take them at all because they're not accredited. Yeah. Okay. You wanted to go deep. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. Yep. 
So the next one would be RIAs and ERAs. We're going to learn some new technology, new terminology. Yeah, RIA, you probably know an RIA is a registered investment advisor. It's yeah. like broker dealer. They have to register with FINRA. They give advice and will tell people how to invest. It's like a fund of funds, but they're more of a of a company that's advising or a licensed professional that's advising. Um, an ERA is a little different than an RIA. An ERA, I have to read it. It's an exempt reporting advisor. So you don't have to necessarily register like you would as a registered investment advisor. You may not have to take a series 65, blah, blah, blah. This is where people that are doing fund of funds may find their niche. Yeah, there's certain requirements. There's some that say you have to have a hundred investors or less. Your assets that you're investing in, the value of just your investment piece can't be more than $150 million. So that's going to be fine for most people. And then you have to do some filing with the SEC only if you're in a certain state that requires it. And you and I are in the great state of Texas, which actually does require you to file an exempt status with the SEC so that you're qualified in Texas to do it. It's crazy. But if you're one of those, an RA or an ERA, you're considered an accredited investor. I don't think there's a whole lot of reason to spend a lot of time on it because I would say 99% of the people that are listening or the people that I know are even RAAs or ERAs, but it was something to note that was changed. Um, family offices with $5 million or more, just like an LLC. Um, so here's the interesting thing, family offices and their family clients. So family offices normally pool money together. So if the family office has more than $5 million, it's assumed that their family clients are also accredited investors. So a little different than the LLC because you have the assumption automatically. Hmm. Uh, and then we went over um, spousal equivalents. So that kind of, there there were eight, there are eight essential ways in which you can be an accredited investor. There's also, you could be a trust um, that has over $5 million or $5 million in assets. But again, I rarely see that, you know, you could also be self-directed IRA, but then you can also add besides the IRA, what, what other assets you may have or your RA may be satisfied. So there's some minor things that you look at, but the biggest one is employees, um, spousal equivalent, the LLCs with 5 million, and you probably hadn't thought about it the way I just explained it, where, uh-oh, if there's some sophisticated, because a lot of people don't think about that and they just see like a one-liner. So it's... What about, what about this one more thing, uh, the five-year thing, accreditation, no verification. Last time we used to verify investor like every 90 days, right? Uh, is that part yeah. of the new regulation or that's something different? It's, I don't know if that part was passed yet, but I think it was approved. Okay. So, so, yeah, so, so, so let me clarify with the listeners here. So last time, everybody who get accreditation verification, you know, they give us a letter, you know, saying that they're accredited, but that letter expires in 90 days, right? But now there's a new guideline, which, you know, you don't need, it's not 90 days, it's five years. It's valid for five years, right? So Right, right. right. There's, there's some, and, and, and you can't quote me because I don't have anything in front of me. I'm trying to okay. recall what I read a few months ago. Okay. So there's a couple things. So first of all, and we didn't talk about it, but it should be noted. Um, the other way, there's three ways essentially to become accredited. Uh, or to verify accreditation. You and I essentially have to become mortgage brokers and we have to do a colonoscopy on every one of our investors' financials. And then we have we have the liability anyway as a 506C. Only, only have to do this under 506C, but we have the, the obligation liability to verify. So that's one way. And 99% of the people, sponsors I know, don't choose that way. It's just too much work. And I don't really want to know that much about my investors. I don't think they want me to know that much about them. The other way is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, verify investor, third party. 
does it typically within 12 to 24 hours of all the documents are there. It's very quick, very professional. Third way is either have your CPA or your attorney. It's not quite an affidavit, but basically they're signing a letter stating that that you meet the requirements. We prepare it in our documentation if someone is uh, doing a 506 C. So it makes it very easy for them to fill out, but lawyers almost never do it uh, because we're not really involved in our clients' financials to that extent. For some reason, I don't know why more CPAs don't do it. But yeah, there's a lot of CPAs like avoid doing it. Yeah, it's the, I, it, they're, I think they're, maybe they're afraid of, uh, of the liability. But so I just, I wanted to, to point out that's one thing because you said just get your piece of paper 90 days. So I have to go back and check, but I'm about 95% positive that that five-year rule is if that's the same investor investing in more of your deals. I don't think I can take an accreditation uh, from an investor that invested in your deal into my deal without doing it because the liability is still, the burden is on you to prove that they're accredited. I can't rely on your proof. Now you can rely on your proof because you approved it once and it worked and you're doing more deals with them. So your obligation to continue to accreditate them is kind of waived. But I, again, I, I, I can come back and send you an email later. I'm pretty sure though, that that doesn't transfer to a different sponsor's deals because that sponsor has life, has obligations to do it. And yes, it's a pain in the ass for some of the investors, some of the credit investors. And I think you may find out the same way I found out. It's very interesting. Those There are many people that think they're accredited and have been telling people they're accredited in 506Bs and they're not accredited and they act shocked. I don't know if they never paid attention to the details or they just figured 506C, 506B, I don't really have to prove anything. It's all them that proves it. And on the flip side, we found that there's several that think they're not quite accredited. And again, they're just not adding things up the way that I guess the SEC does. And they go through the process and they're actually accredited. So one, that, that's, that quite honestly is the primary reason I like using a third party because when it gets close to stuff like that, I don't want to be the one who's liable. I don't want to be the one who's making mistakes. Got it. Got it. Got it. Wow. That's a, a good list, but I think it's, it's, I think it's a really good news for a lot of uh, non-accredited investors, right? So, because now you have many avenues to, you know, invest in 506C uh, deal and, uh, you know, show that you're accredited, right? Even in 506B, you know, because now it's unlimited, right? Once you become accredited, you are not tied to that 35 sophisticated right. uh, investor uh, definition. Right. So even just taking an SEC exam, I mean, the series six or series seven, I don't know, some licensing exam. 65, I think is the series 65. The, okay. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, um, in, you, you started this podcast off with, you know, kind of where do I think the market's going, blah, blah, blah. I think, and what we're seeing is at least what we're seeing as a law firm, less sophisticated investors jumping into deals right now. They, I, I, and this is not an insult to, to sophisticated investors, but I don't know if they really truly understand that your cash sitting in the bank right now with let's say four and a half percent inflation is losing four and a half percent every year doing nothing. And you actually should want to put it into something, you know, like commercial real estate, some sort of cash flow, capital preservation with some sort of tax uh, depreciation or tax uh, uh, advantage. But I think COVID and the media surrounding it has scared a lot of people, and especially those that just can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, even though we all do see it, can't see the light. So I think, I think people, uh, well, it's not I think, 
I can tell you that 506Cs from our firm in the last nine months are probably up 70%. It's probably 50-50 now, and it used to be about 25-75 Cs to Bs. Now it's- A lot more people doing 506C, I guess. they're, They're doing more marketing. They're trying people they don't know. They realize there's a lot of capital out there that's wanting to put money in place now, especially coming hopefully out of COVID or into a, I would call it a controlled COVID environment that we seem to be in now. And so it's opening up a lot of pathways. And we see those with 506Bs are having more difficulty, a lot more difficulty in raising capital because again, they can't do the general advertising. For 506B, I guess. Okay. Right. You're you're limited to your, you know, your pre-existing relationships. Awesome. Okay. Okay. Cool. So, Manu, let's go to a bit more personal side of you, right? So, because I know. <laughs> is there any proud moment in your life that you think you know throughout your whole life, right? I mean, not your personal life. I mean, throughout your your whole professional career, was there any one single moment that you can think that, "Huh, I'm really proud that I did that." I mean, no matter what, right? Anything what should be a professional that I'm really proud that I did that I'm proud of myself and I can never forget right I can never forget it until so you want me to exclude family issues no family you want me yeah. to exclude being on your podcast yeah something that you did that you are hmm. I mean you gave a pat on the back for yourself and so, can remember until now yeah I mean look I naturally a pessimist in general, that's why being a corporate bankruptcy lawyer fit me perfect because I assume the worst. This is going to sound weird. And there are probably many moments I am, let's just say I am most proud when I see kind of first time clients like become very successful in not just capital raising, but in developing relationships with their investors for the first time. And as you know, we hold everybody's hand on their deals. Oh, we hold everybody's hand on every deal. It's good and bad for us because it takes a lot of time, but it, it, it gets me really, it sounds weird because it's not what a lawyer should say, but like I have joy when I see people working really hard and asking the right questions and it comes together. You know, we take them out for a celebration, not, hey, celebrate, come do it with us again. It's you guys did it. You made it. This is very exciting. So like I don't have a I mean, my proudest moments would be with my kids, you know, and things they've achieved from a business perspective. Haven't been sued by the SEC or investigated. I'm very proud of that. But it it goes back. It goes again. It goes to uh, client success. It's weird. I haven't told anybody about it. And but if you make me think about it and put me on the spot, because this was not a question we were going to talk about that I knew. Really, it's probably just seeing clients and like seeing people like you who have known a long time and you have this great following and no one says anything negative about you. And like, I get excited about that because there's a lot of the opposite of that. And there's a lot of the opposite of people saying, I'm just going to go do a deal and I don't care about who I'm bringing in for capital. I don't really care if I'm never going to pay them an 18 to 20% IRR. And so then when I see, and I have to say, sometimes it seems like a smaller group going in excited, they've learned some stuff and they go in and it works. That gets, I just get really excited about it. Like I, we say congratulations every time someone says they get an LOI. Sometimes I say, 
come meet me at the club. Let's have a scotch. I already have the work. I'm not worried about the work. I'm excited that they beat out people that were more experienced and presumably their numbers are still good. That makes me proud. Lawyer answer. No, no, no. That's, that's, a, that's a really good, you know. See, I, I make you think, you see. <laughs> okay, yeah. second question. <laughs> right. So so let's say you have, you're able to, you know, uh, write a, something on a big banner where everybody can see, right, on a, on a highway, right? I mean, you've got this big highway where the whole world is going to drive by and say, and you are given the option to write a sentence on that banner, right? You, what would you write on it? I would write, and this is not going to be what you would think I would say. I would write, be transparent to everyone. Okay. I think in business, in life, in family, just be who you are. Don't play games. And, you know, I pride myself on transparency. And, you know, and sometimes me saying to people, I don't think you should do this. And other people are saying, well, they say you should. And I'm telling you you're wrong. I lose clients, but I sleep at night. It doesn't look like it with my eyes because I took a nap before I talked to you. But uh, I, uh, I, I, I just think be transparent to others. And I think you will find out that people want to work with you. And those that don't appreciate your transparency, you shouldn't be working with in the first place. And I tell everybody when you're doing a deal, like if you and I are going to partner, I got to pretend like you're my spouse and I'm married to you for the next five years. And you're you're married. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm married and I'm not getting divorced. And so I've been with the same person for 25 years and it's not always, you know, dandelions and fairy dust and unicorns, but we work things through and you have to treat your your business partner like a spouse. And I would tell people, if you're divorced, then don't treat your business partner like a spouse and treat them how how you want to treat a spouse. But that goes back to transparency, you know, be transparent. Got it, got it. So why do you do what you're doing? I mean, apart from you working as as a, you being a lawyer, right? I mean, you're doing a lot of things, you know, doing a lot of education as well. Why you do that whole thing? Where do you see yourself in this world? So I think I probably have self-diagnosed business ADD. I say self-diagnosed because I've never seen anybody, but I, from the moment I got, I became a bankruptcy lawyer, restructuring lawyer. The bankruptcy part was never that exciting. The restructuring part was fascinating. How do you see companies that fall apart and then you put different pieces together, different players together, different capital, and they can be right-sized up in a reorganization and they do well. Take, for example, Hertz rental car. I don't know if people even follow, but Hertz filed bankruptcy during COVID. Their stock went down to 12 cents. You know, people aren't paying attention. You know what their stock is today? And they're still in bankruptcy, $6.25. Yes, it was like one of the first times I actually invested in the stock market and made money. And that was pure luck. But what I saw, because I followed that bankruptcy, because that was kind of interesting to me, how a rental rental car company was affected that quickly by COVID. And when you see some light at the end of the tunnel, which they saw, all these investors are coming in. They're, they see that travel is going on. Go try renting a car at the airport right now. They're all sold out. I know this for a fact. Just got back from vacation. We get there. Our car did not exist. That was not fun. But And the lines were unbelievable. So, you know, it's exciting. If it was my client, I'd be excited. It'd be one of my proud moments to see them coming out of a really bad situation. So what was the question again? Why do you do what you do, right? So why do I do what I do? 
I enjoy putting things together. Okay. If you ask my wife, I can't put anything together in the house. <laughs> no, don't uh, talk anything about the house, right? We, we, are, we are heroes outside. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not, I not in the my house. My wife had a dinner the other night. She told somebody I couldn't even screw a light bulb in. And I said, well, why should I have to? I can pay somebody to do it. I'm working on businesses. <laughs> anyway, I like putting together businesses. But what I've learned, in, in, and I know you know this as well, in my mind, I think I can do everything. My experience and some of my, I won't call them failures, challenges have told me I can't do everything. And so I get an idea or a structure or something. I run it through my head. I do my typical pessimistic bankruptcy test. I try to I try to throw it into bankruptcy before it even starts. And then if I can get past that, then what I do is I talk to my team because I have a phenomenal team. And I'm like, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Because I can't do it all. In my mind, I think I can, but I know for a fact I can't do it all. So I try to surround myself with really hardworking, intelligent individuals that are very good kind of in their lane. And everybody tells me I'm all over the place, but that's kind of, that's the mad you know, scientists I like being. So I have these people and they're allowed to speak freely with me. I don't call them employees. I call them partners. Even if they're not a true partner, I, I refer to them as my partner in every meeting. Um, they tell me, hey, we can't do this or hey, you're doing too much. But I like doing deals. I like doing deals. I like helping people. I can't be an educator and I can't talk on podcasts like you can. I just, I don't have the patience. My mind's working too much. Um, and I'd probably say things I should never say on a podcast, <laughs> even though you can not educational. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I just, I, I enjoy, to me, it's fun. But the funny thing is I don't enjoy the actual operation side. I enjoy putting it together, structuring it, raising capital, and then selling it. I'm involved on the operation side, but I have really, really good people that, like it so much more than I do. And I like that. So it allows me to go and jump and do several different things. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Good. Yeah. So why not you tell our audience and listeners about, you know, where can they find you? Um, normally you can find me on the street corner with a sign that says mm -hmm. we'll work for league. Well, you know, we'll work for food. Um, all kidding aside. Um, we've got, uh, our, we've got a couple offices here in North Dallas, uh, which is almost irrelevant since COVID, uh, has happened. I think 60% of our business now is outside of Texas from webinars and not podcasting, but webinars, which are similar to podcasting. Um, so you can find us. The easiest way to find us is you can go to Caliser Law, K-A-L-I-S-E-R Law, L-A-W.com. Um, we have a Facebook page, Instagram. I'm told I'm getting a TikTok. I don't know what that even means, a TikTok oh, page. That's, that's something that you have to do some dances. That's what I'm told. And like I, I'm, <laughs> we, I hired a brand manager. So like all my social media is going to be changed even more. You're going to see more of me, which is just great for most people. But the easiest way, if you have questions, uh, team, T-E-A-M at alicerlaw.com. And I'm adamant about our firm using that because that gets five people five of us when you email us. So you have a question, you don't have to be a client to ask a question. You're going to get a response fairly quickly. And I think you, you know that as well. And then we tell everybody kind of our big deal is if you're in an LOI position, letter of intent, run it by us, run it by any firm. We don't charge to look at it and give you, a, it's going to take us 30 seconds because we do thousands of them to look, make sure you're on the right path. If you get it, great. Come to us. If you get it, you don't want to come to us. I'm okay with that. I would just like people to start off in a deal the right way. And so people are afraid to engage a lawyer. Don't engage us. Send it to us and say, hey, does this look okay? Not legal advice. It's entertainment advice, but you'd probably get that advice if you paid us on the LOI. But 
you know how it is. You can submit four or five LOIs, only one gets accepted, and a law firm's going to charge a retainer on every one. It's crazy. So, yeah, www.callisterlaw.com, Starbucks Reserve at uh, Legacy West between the hours of 7 and 8.30. You might see me there. But other than that, hit us up on the website or the email. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Meryl. Thanks for coming in and dropping a lot of knowledge, right? So happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.